My, uh, once again, my name is Mike, and it is an honor to be with you today. I also want to express my deep gratitude to you as a church for your care and concern. Uh, while I was sick, I think many of you know I had COVID, and I had it pretty bad, and uh, I received notes of encouragement from some of you. I was informed of your uh, prayers collectively on my behalf. I'm better now. I'm grateful for that, and it's good to be here. Uh, for the past several years, I don't know how long, four, five, um, I've served as the chair of the Church Development Committee for the Mid-America Presbytery. Essentially, our committee facilitates the planting process for churches at various points along the journey, from just getting started uh, all the way to sort of crossing the finish line, as it were, uh, which is what today is all about. I'm joined this morning by Joe Graniazen over there. You'll hear from him in a moment. He's a ruling elder at City Church uh, with me. And until yesterday afternoon, uh, Brian Roskin was planning on being, being here. But you just can't get good help these days. No, he, uh, he's not feeling well. We think it's just a cold, but uh, uh, with an abundance of caution, we decided that it's probably best for him to to stay home. I know that he was really bummed about that. He was looking forward to being here. Brian's a teaching elder over at River City Church in St. Charles, uh, but I will, uh, I'll take over his part for him. Uh, the three of us, Joe, Brian, and I, along with Steve Ward and Scott, Scott Holly, uh, who are both ruling elders over at Green Tree Community Church, uh, the five of us, we serve as a commission of the presbytery, which is empowered to act on the presbytery's behalf to formally localize Highlands Church, which essentially means we have the honor of uh, recognizing and blessing God's provision for you to this point, including the installation of Jordan Deub as your pastor, as well as ordaining and installing uh, Justice Baycott, Mike Miller, and Craig Venard as your ruling elders. And so this morning you are being constituted as your own church. And this is not merely a formality. I'm well aware uh, that you all have been doing the work of ministry faithfully for many years now. Uh, as God's people in a particular place, you've been living fruitfully as the body of Christ in this community for some time. And so in a sense, this morning aims to essentially celebrate and bless that work in a particularly Presbyterian way. And one of the best parts of being Presbyterian, aside from our theology, I would argue, is our connectionalism, which is sort of a fancy word that speaks to our intentionality to not only cultivate relationships regionally from church to church and among officers, but also the, the accountability provided by our system of government through the presbytery. And that's why you're going to be hearing from people who typically aren't here on Sunday morning, which is Joe and myself. Vows will be made, prayers will be said, charges will be issued. But before we get to all of that, I'd like uh, for us to turn our attention briefly to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So if you would, please turn with me there now as I read that passage, Acts 2, 42 through 47. 
And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. I'm going to pray before going any further. You're welcome to join me as I do. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would be with us, dwell with us, and anoint our time by and through your spirit as we turn our attention to your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and make our hearts supple to the beauty of the gospel and our minds sensitive to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. In his book titled Sabbath Poems, author Wendell Berry shares a one-sentence poem, which is the seventh and last entry from his 1997 collection. That poem goes as follows. There is a day when the road neither comes nor goes, and the way is not a way, but a place. So what do you prefer, ways or places, moving or staying? And I'm not just speaking geographically, I'm thinking more fundamentally about our posture toward life in this world, staying put or on the go. Generally speaking, I think it's safe to say that most people are in constant motion nowadays. Their thoughts, their feelings, their sense of purpose and direction. There's a a churning in us that seems almost unceasing. Due to sin, a human nature is restless. And what results from that restlessness is an inability or at least a difficulty, to sit or persist in our callings. And when I say calling, I simply mean your lot in life, the roles you inhabit, the places where you dwell, the responsibilities you have, the shape of of covenantal embodiment in the local church. In a sense, this has always been the case, right? There's nothing new under the sun. In the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the great reformer John Calvin addressed this phenomenon. He wrote, The Lord bids each one of us in all life's actions to look to his calling. For he knows, that is, God knows, with what great restlessness human nature flames, with what fickleness it is born hither and thither, and how its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. Therefore, lest through our stupidity and rashness everything be turned topsy-turvy, he has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. 
And that no one may thoughtlessly transgress his limits, God has named those various kinds of livings callings. Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post, so that he may not heedlessly wander about throughout life. So, what does this have to do with the end of Acts 2? Well, uh, to get specific, when God calls you to the church, He calls you not to an institution, but to a people and a place for the duration, I would argue. Our text today presents an almost idyllic portrait of Christian community. Luke describes an experience of people and place that almost sounds like an echo of Eden. And if we're honest, many of us, particularly those of us who've been Christians for like more than a week, we might read Acts 2, 42 through 47 with a measure of incredulity because we know better, right? It's not really like that. People are far more selfish than Acts 2 would seem to suggest. Community is far messier. The socio-cultural habits and structures of 21st century America seem to prohibit the kind of communal living described here. This may have been what it looks like for zealous first century Christians, but it can't be like that now. Can it not? Yes, it can. Now, the the practical circumstances will certainly look and feel different, but the Acts 2 type of Christian practices and gospel convictions that shape life together in the church are both accessible and realistic when the Spirit of God is present and active. When it comes to to Christian community, half the battle is committing to a people and a place over the long haul. Because really, being present... And fully engaged is where character is often formed, right? Slowing down enough to experience the mundane struggles of finding meaning and peace alongside people who sometimes annoy you and occasionally even hurt you, that is where character is formed. That's part of the reason why the shape of life Uh, in community described in Acts 2 seems so unrealistic to many of us because intuitively it means giving up so much that we hold dear. It means willingly moving at a pace uh, with which we may not be altogether comfortable, letting go of our sense of autonomy and allowing one another, other people, a challenging degree of say in how we live our individual lives. That's kind of scary, kind of unsettling, particularly for us here in America. So then what does it look like to experience the kind of flourishing community described in these verses? What is the shape of a commitment required to bear the fruit of God's Spirit among a group of, uh, among a group of sinners in a particular place over a long period of time? Well, three things, I believe. Submission, sacrifice, and celebration. And it is these three elements that constitute our outline today. When the gospel captivates God's people, they will submit. 
When the gospel captivates God's people, they will sacrifice. And when the gospel captivates God's people, they will celebrate. So first, let's consider this principle of submission. Bit of a scary word for many of us. When the gospel captivates God's people, they will submit. Coming right out of Pentecost, the very next thing we read is found here in verse 42. So think of it this way. If the pouring out of God's Spirit was the cause, Pentecost, well, this was the effect. It says, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. So the first consequence of receiving the Spirit was a hunger to know God and understand His will, which for all Christians manifests in the following ways. A desire to be shaped by His story rather than busy ourselves writing our own. Number two, a longing and commitment to submit to His truth rather than devising or interpreting our own. A willingness to submit to His values rather than the world's. And an eagerness to submit to His people rather than be driven by self-interest alone. And so an immediate fruit of the Spirit in the life of the Christian is the desire and willingness to submit. And in our passage today, we see that submission take two basic forms, submission to God's Word and submission to each other. In the first part of verse 42, it describes the devotion of these early Christians. And to what were they devoted? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They were devoted to learning what God has to say about all of life. They weren't devoted to learning what the world thinks about itself. They weren't devoted to immersing themselves in Greco-Roman culture and becoming just like their worldly neighbors. No, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, apostles who were otherwise average people, many of whom previously led normal lives like, like fishing and tax collecting. Nonetheless, men who were set apart by God to teach and lead God's people in gospel living through the power of the Spirit. So often we bring our own assumptions to the text. We bring our own values and convictions about the world and the way things should be, and we read those into Scripture, but when we do that, and all of us do that to one degree or another, myself included, we are, after all, finite human beings, but when we do that consistently, we're not submitting to the apostles' teaching, we're making their teaching submit to our personal agenda, and that's ultimately self-destructive. And so, part of the value of being in community is that accountability, uh, the accountability we experience when, uh, uh, when, others, uh, put, when, when we put others first, is that we are able to call out such uh, duplicity and wrong thinking, even when it's quite subtle, which is why you can't be devoted to the apostles' teaching without also being devoted to the fellowship, right? Because Christian doctrine isn't meant to be learned or understood in a vacuum. No, it's, it's meant to be lived out, practiced, and applied in community. Being devoted to learning about the gospel outside of committed relationships in the church would be like learning to swim on dry land. 
You might know all of the strokes and movements uh, intellectually. You may have all the terminology down and could describe the the ins and outs of of swimming technique, treading water, diving, you know, correct breathing, etc., but without firsthand experience in the context in which it matters most, i.e. the water, what good is that knowledge? Such is the case with doctrine. You see, teaching and fellowship necessarily go hand in hand. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, does this mean that they all have the same tastes and personalities? Absolutely not. It simply means their priorities were aligned. When the gospel captivates your mind and heart, it enables you to see things as they truly are. It enables you to major in the majors rather than squabble about trivialities insofar as it engenders mutual submission to God's Word and to each other, the gospel of Jesus Christ enables people to be united, united through submission. And to the next crucial aspect of healthy community, when the gospel captivates God's people, they will sacrifice, verse 45, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, if we're honest, this is probably the verse that scares us the most. There's something innate about the selfishness with which we approach our stuff. We tend to define ourselves based upon what we own. And not just what we own, but the quality of our things tends to say a lot about us, or so our culture preaches, and we believe it. What is more, many of our possessions were purchased with our own money that we worked hard to earn. And when our view of money and material things is oriented around self-achievement, well, then it makes sense that we don't want to part with what we view as rightly ours. But when the gospel captivates your heart and mind, It furnishes you with a corrected worldview that rightly understands that God's people are not autonomous owners of things they've earned, but stewards in submission to God called to manage and care for that which is on loan to them by God. As such, the gospel affords God's people two key things that we observe in this little verse. Number one a new understanding of personal property, and number two, a new appreciation for others' needs. Not only does the gospel shed clarifying light on how we think about money and things, it also gives us compassion to then meet the needs of others, right? That's a natural byproduct of a reoriented understanding of things and material possessions and and how we are to be open to having our needs met by others. Now, some of you are keen to help others, but you may find yourself refusing to be helped yourself. And that's not humility, it's just disobedience, a sort of inverted form of selfishness. But when the gospel captivates God's people, they willingly share one another's burdens. Jonathan Edwards spoke to the kind of burden sharing that is expected of Christians when he wrote, we, in many cases, may 
by the rule of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we can't without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities are much greater than ours and we see that they are not likely to be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with them and to take part of their burden upon ourselves. Or else, how is that rule fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens? If we are never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but only when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? That seems pretty logical. When we only offer to help when we're in a comfortable position to do so, we aren't actually sharing the burden. We're just giving of our abundance, which by itself is not wrong, so please don't hear what I'm not saying. It's just not burden sharing. It's not sacrificial in the biblical sense of the word. But when the gospel truly captivates your heart, a natural byproduct is a willingness to sacrifice, to actually take on, to feel and endure part of their pain, as it were. So submission, number one. Sacrifice, number two. Finally, let's look at the third ingredient to healthy gospel community. When the gospel captivates God's people, they will celebrate. I'm going to jump around a bit, skipping pieces here and there, but as I read the rest of the verses in this section, notice the celebration that forms the, the undercurrent beneath everything. And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Not only did the people devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, they devoted themselves to sharing meals together. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to praying together. They devoted themselves to worshiping together. Verse 46, in sharing so much of their lives together, they were able literally to eat and be merry. Right? Receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, it says. And as they did, they praised God and they were a witness. They enjoyed favor with their neighbors, verse 47. Now, two aspects of this celebration that are crucially important, each in its own right. There's a formal and informal aspect. The formal aspect of celebration is what we're doing right now. Corporate worship. When the gospel truly captivates someone, he or she will make attending church every Sunday with their spiritual family an absolute top-tier priority. Not because it's a religious duty, not because it earns you points with God, and not because that's what makes a good Christian. You make it a point to be here, physically or virtually, every week, because this is your primary spiritual family, and being together like this is one of the most important, formative, and celebratory things you do in your life, full stop. Listening to worship music in your car, it's wonderful, great thing. Not the same thing 
as standing amidst the congregation and projecting your voice upward and outward alongside other real people. Listening to sermon audio online, wonderful thing, good, hope you do it. Not the same as experiencing God's word being proclaimed live and in the moment when the Holy Spirit is moving. And I would argue the Lord's Supper is an embodied meal for the gathered church, not something you can experience by yourself alone. It is by its very nature a meal to be shared with others. So formal celebration on Sunday is paramount. But the other six days of the week afford Christians the opportunity to engage informally in celebration as well. The passage seems to indicate that they spent time together, a lot of time. They ate together, they prayed together, they were in each other's lives enough to to read and respond to needs. When they arose, they garnered respect and favor from their neighbors as, as a witness. They were joyful people. Christians should be joyful people. Their joy should be contagious. Submission, sacrifice, celebration. Look at the last part of verse 47. The last sentence of this passage. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what happens. When the church is the church, God intends it to be. He grows it. Notice the early church didn't add to its number. No, God added to their number. The early church didn't devise an awesome outreach program that really spoke to the culture. They didn't send out mailers advertising their next hip sermon series. They didn't rent a billboard and put Peter's smiling face on it. No, they simply busied themselves with the work of being the church. And God added to their number. And that's how you know you have a healthy church. It's not about attendance numbers or the size of your budget. But when you simply concern yourself with doing a handful of things well, being devoted to the Word, making prayer individually and corporately a priority, observing the sacraments, being with one another in your homes, celebrating life with one another, weeping with one another, helping one another through genuine burden sharing, These are the things that God blesses, and these are the things that will remake the world. Highlands Church, this is your calling. It's not complex, but it is supernatural. Submission, sacrifice, celebration with these people in this place for years and years and years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your spirit uh, providing for it over these many years. We pray, Lord, that this morning would be uh, another moment in their journey in which they can testify to your goodness and faithfulness Lord, I pray in the weeks and months and years and decades to come, Lord, that you would uh, love these people through the gospel, through your truth, shape them, mature them, sanctify them, I pray, that you would be pleased by their witness.
and glorified by their worship. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.